All right. Well, this morning we have the privilege of starting off a, a brand new series here at Central. We are starting into a new sermon series in the book of Philippians. So for the summer, we are going to be looking at this book. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's commonly known as the book of joy. All right, seems awfully appropriate to walk through summer, to be walking through the book of joy. Now, if you've been around Central for a little while, you, you might remember that this last fall, we went through another one of Paul's letters, right? We went through the book of 1 Corinthians, took a number of weeks and walked through, through that book and looked at all the issues that Paul had to, to wrestle with. And he was dealing with all of these problems that had come up in the church and he was writing to them to correct them. All right, you guys, how did you get into this, right? He was saying, you, you've got to understand where you should be going and, and what you should be doing. Philippians is almost the exact opposite of that. Paul writes to Philippians and he's celebrating, he is rejoicing. This is a church that's actually doing well. And so Paul is rejoicing and celebrating with what God has been doing in this church. And so that's what we get this summer to walk through. We get to walk through joy. And I'm actually quite looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. It's going to be a good study as we walk through this book. But what's so unique about this isn't just that it's, it's a joyful book. It's not just that it's, it's, it's a book where you kind of rejoice and, and things are all going well. So you might assume that Paul writing a book like this is kind of sitting on, on a hillside on a beautiful summer's day as he sits there with his back against a tree looking out and a little butterfly flutters by and he, he's pondering on, on, on the wonder of joy and all of this. Right? That's how we would expect him to be writing this book where he should be sitting. Because for a lot of the time, isn't that how we understand joy? We look at joy and happiness and we connect it to what is going on at the time, right? We connect it to the things that we are going through, whether that's, you know, you get married, that's a joyful day, right? You have kids, you become a father for the first time, that's a joyful day, Right? Even, even more mundane things like, like just going to see a good movie, reading a good book, having a good meal. Right? We, these are things we connect with, with joy and happiness. And so we can only assume as we read this, well, well, Paul must be going through all of those. It must be a book where, where he is going, man, life is just so good, right? The problem is, is when that's our definition of joy, the truth is, there are times when those things fade, don't they? Right? Those, are, those are moments in time that, that are happy and are filled with joy. There's moments that we have, but they don't last all the way. They don't last through. And so we find ourselves kind of chasing after the next one. We're chasing after that next moment that can give us joy, that next moment, that next experience, that next thing that will keep us happy. And we, we, we often think that's the way to, to move towards more happiness. But if you know anything about the book of Philippians, that's not where Paul is. In fact, Paul isn't sitting on a nice summer hillside. He's sitting in jail. Paul has been put into jail in Rome, and he's actually waiting to hear, he's waiting to go to trial to see whether or not he will be put to death. 
Paul is writing as a death row inmate, and he has written the book of joy. See, that's someone I actually want to listen to. See, that's someone who is actually going to be able to take us past just chasing after that next moment, that next experience, that next thing that might give me joy, and actually can speak to something that has a lasting joy that has a lasting happiness before him. He can say, while sitting in jail, I am rejoicing. See, that's what I want us to look at this summer. And the reason I think it's so appropriate that we do this over summer is simply because summer is probably the time where we are most tempted to find joy in all manner of other things. Right? The weather is beautiful. Oh, it's so nice. The sun is shining. You can go out for a nice hike. You get a vacation. You get time off. All of these things that, that seem to draw us away. Now, hear me. None of those things are bad. It's not, it's not wrong to enjoy your vacation or to enjoy the beautiful creation God has made. But all of them don't lead us to a lasting joy. Oftentimes, we use them as distractions, don't we? We use them as a distraction to, to put off the other problems and the things that are going on in life. The problem is September comes and it hits us like a ton of bricks. September comes and all of a sudden all the problems we had been ignoring for so long suddenly sweep in and we're crushed under them. What I want us to do this summer is to look at a, a place where lasting joy actually exists that goes over all of these momentary joys, as good as they are, and lasts us through even the winter. All right? So that's what I want us to see as we start into this book of Philippians, this book of joy. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start right at the very beginning. Right at the very beginning of Paul's letter to this church, we're going to read. And we're going to read, really, Paul's introduction, but it's more than that. It's, it's Paul talking about this church that has captured his attention and his affection to them. So, would you follow along with me in your Bibles? Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with a fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. You know, as we begin this letter, it's, it's interesting to, to read through that. Because most likely, as you read it, especially for the first time, what, what you notice is just how 
unbelievably emotional Paul is, right? This is, this is emotional language that Paul is using for the church. He loves this church, right? In fact, if you know anything about sort of Paul's missionary journeys and know where he traveled, you'll probably have a little bit of an understanding as to why. Why does Paul love this church so much? Well, if you go back into Acts chapter 16, you, you'll start to see Paul's journey, and him trying to figure out where God was calling him to go. And he was trying to go in a bunch of different places. And every, every time he tried, it seemed like the door was always getting shut on him. Until God called him, he said, go over to Macedonia, right? Today we just call that Greece, okay? Head over to Greece. And where he lands is this city called Philippi. And there he talks to a woman by the name of Lydia, and she becomes the first convert on the European continent, the first Christian woman to understand and accept Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins to work in that city, and he begins to, to grow and develop this church until one day, finally, they're, they're sick of Paul. He keeps on getting in the way, and so they throw him in jail. Both Paul and his friend Silas are in jail in Philippi, and and instead of, of mourning, instead of going, oh, I can't believe what just happened, what do they do? Well, they start singing hymns in the prison. And that very night, an earthquake hits the city, breaks open the prison doors, and Paul and Silas walk out free. And you'd think they'd just escape and go on their way. No, actually, they stuck around, didn't they? They stick around and they meet the jailer who's overwhelmed that they actually stayed there and they listen to Paul and he shares the gospel with them and his entire family comes to know Jesus. See, Paul knew this city well. He had spent time there. In fact, as you follow his journeys, he kind of keeps on going back into Philippi. Why? It was a church he genuinely loved and cared about these people. And so what we're reading this morning is his introduction, his letter to them saying, I just cannot believe how amazing the work of God has been among you. Paul is genuinely thankful for them. So what I want us to see this morning is we kind of just walk through this introduction. I want us to see that he is thankful for, for the grace that they have received. He's thankful for their partnership and he's praying that God would increase the fruit among them. In fact, he is, yeah, showing his love for this church. They are becoming the reason that Paul is rejoicing in this letter, but it's not just about them. It's actually about what God is doing in them. So let's take a look at that. First thing I want us to see, that he is thankful for the grace that God has given to them. Verse 1 and 2, really, that, that very first introduction, if you know anything about ancient letters, you'll know that, that's a standard introduction, right? That's how they wrote. Instead of dear so-and-so, they would start with whoever wrote it. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. And then to the recipients, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, right? Paul is writing to an entire church. Now, I know whenever we see saints, it's not super Christians. Saints are those who have believed in Jesus, those who have followed after him. They're called saints, holy, chosen ones. That's the title given to all believers. And he says, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, this is Paul's very standard way of introducing a letter. But that doesn't mean that we just pass it by and go, well, yep, that's just kind of the, the normal thing. Ignore it and continue on. 
Actually, this is what Paul is praying for this church. He is praying that God would give them grace and peace. And in fact, we, as we continue to read his introduction, we're going to see exactly what he means. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. See, Paul is constantly praying for this church. Notice how many times he repeats that all, every, all the time. I am rejoicing whenever I think of you. I I am celebrating this church every time it comes to my mind. In fact, he says it's not even a heavy-hearted remembrance. Oh, yeah, remember that church? No, he's praying with joy. He is rejoicing with what God is doing among them. In fact, he tells us his reason, verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, the first reason Paul has to rejoice is because actually they were fellow partners with him in the grace of God. Actually, they were fellow partakers of the good news of what Jesus had done. That Jesus had forgiven their sins. This is the very first reason why Paul can rejoice over them. It's because God has chosen them out, has called them to be holy, has given them Jesus so that their sins were forgiven. That already is a massive reason to rejoice. See, the same is true of us. For every single Christian, we, we share a unique bond through what Jesus has done. If you've ever traveled to the other side of the world or just somewhere else outside of sort of your normal circles and you go somewhere and you you go into a church, you're going to find out those aren't strangers anymore. Actually, those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You You are bound together by what Jesus has done. See, my wife and I, we, we, uh, we had a chance to take a vacation not long ago. We went off to Mexico and so it was really nice just to have a week off and got to relax but, but genuinely, my favorite part of that vacation was on Sunday morning, we, we found a church nearby, and we walked into it, and, and we got to praise, and we got to worship God with a whole bunch of people we had never met before. I, I cannot tell you the, the name of the resort we stayed at, but I know the pastor preached on 1 Peter chapter 4. It was fantastic. That's actually what I remember because that was the biggest highlight of our trip to Mexico. It was the time we got to spend with other believers in Jesus Christ because I had never met them, but they were my brothers and sisters. See, I think sometimes we we tend to think pretty poorly about church. We, We tend to think about church, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I'm not really excited about church. I'm not really rejoicing over church. I'm not really, you know, thankful for the church. It just kind of is a part of my life. Yet if we are bound together to believers on the other side of the world, how much more the ones right here, the ones who go to church with us, should we not be rejoicing even more so about the person sitting next to us that God has redeemed and has forgiven their sins? Should that not cause us to rejoice again and again every single week? That we get to gather together to celebrate and worship God because of what he's done. That is a reason to rejoice and to celebrate. God has done amazing things here. 
Look, I, I know, I, I've been burned by churches in the past. I, I've had Christians say and do things I thought they never should be doing. But the call isn't to say that, that churches or Christians are perfect. It's a call to say, I'm going to see the work of God amongst the people that he has brought together. It's God's grace that motivates the celebration and the rejoicing and the joy that he has done. In fact, Paul goes on to say it's a grace not just for, for the past, what he has done, but in fact what he is doing and will continue to do. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now that's quite the statement, isn't it? That's quite the statement to, to kind of read through. And you probably want to slow down and say like, whoa, Paul, where's that confidence coming from? Right? How, how can you say that, that you are sure that God is going to hold them through to the end? Haven't you ever had someone walk away? Right? In fact, if you read through the, uh, the letters that Paul writes and, and the book of Acts, you'll know people do leave him. People do betray him. People do walk away. So, so where is this confidence actually coming from? What is he saying here? Well, I think first of all, it's helpful just to look at what Jesus says. Jesus in John chapter 10, he gives a promise concerning his disciples. This is what he says. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. See, the promise that Jesus makes here is that actually the Father is greater than anyone, and no one is taking us away from the Father. No one is able to separate us from the love of God. No force of nature, no coercion, no suffering, no pain can separate us from what Jesus has done. And that's what Paul is talking about. There is this hope that God will keep us. Now, now hear me. This isn't talking about some kind of easy believism. Where as long as you raised your hand at the right time, you said the right words, or you checked the right box, it's all going to be okay. No, no, that's not what this is talking about. The Bible has lots to say about self-deception, about false teachers, and all these other kinds of things. This isn't some sort of just say the right words and you're through. What this is, is a promise. It's a promise that for all those who persevere in the faith, it is because of the work of God in their life. We are not able ever to keep us. Actually, God is the one who's going to do it. He is the one who began a good work. He will bring it to completion. See, Paul is looking at the promise that Jesus made to his disciples, and he's saying, that's why I can be confident. I can be confident because God who began this good work is going to complete it. In fact, Paul is rejoicing because God has given them grace, this gift they have not deserved. He's thankful for the grace that God has given to this church, and so he is resounding in joy and celebration every time he thinks or prays for them. But as we keep reading, we realize actually Paul has more to say here, doesn't he? There's more reasons he has to be thankful. It's not only that God has given them grace, but he's thankful for their partnership in the work of the gospel. Look back at verse 7 with me. 
He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul again tells them of this just genuine love he has for these people. And then he says part of the reason is that because you have been engaged in the same work that I have been doing, this same work of, of spreading the gospel so that other people could hear, you have been doing that as well. You are partakers with me, not only in, in, in sharing, but you've even gone to jail for it. The Philippian church was feeling that pressure, that, that, that persecution from people around them. And people have been going to jail and Paul knew it. And Paul actually said, I am rejoicing in that because it means you are actively engaged in the work of ministry. You are a part of what God is doing. In fact, they, they went even over and above that. See, in Roman jails, that's where Paul was. He's in this Roman jail and, and at that time, they wouldn't give their prisoners things. They wouldn't give them food, or well, shelter, I suppose they did, but they wouldn't have clothing, extra food, anything like that. So if they were to do that, the prisoners themselves had to get food. Now that's pretty hard to do when you're in prison. It wasn't easy. What did you have to do? You had to rely on others to help you. And in fact, that's exactly what the Philippian church was doing. They were over here in Greece. Paul's in jail in Italy, in Rome. And they are sending people with supplies, money, people to go help Paul as he is in jail, waiting to hear whether or not he'll be put to death. The Philippian church is engaged with actually supporting Paul even in his imprisonment. And so Paul sees that and he is rejoicing because their faith is not just about an emotion. Actually, it's following into an action. That's why he uses this term partnership, partakers. They're, they're action words. They're involved in what is happening. See, it's the reason why here at Central, we talk about ministry partnership. Right? We, don't, we don't talk about membership. We talk about ministry partnership when you join the church. And the reason actually comes from these verses. This is why we, we use that language. It's from these, from these verses. And the reason is because you can be a member of pretty much anything, right? You can be a Costco member. You can be a member at the Y downtown. And really, it doesn't mean anything, does it? It doesn't mean anything except you paid enough money to go there, right? Being a member at the Y, you don't ever even have to show up. You don't ever have to have worked out there to be a member of the Y. You don't have to go in the pool. You don't have to do anything. You just have the card. You're a member. But that's not how the church works. It's not what the church is to look like. It's not supposed to look like something where you just have a card and, hey, you're good. It's not some vague notion of, well, I have sort of a, a home church. That's kind of where I belong. Actually, to be a part of a church means you are actively engaged in what is going on, that you are authentically following after Jesus, that you are using of your time, your resources, your skills, your gifts in order to further the cause of Jesus among our church and among our city. See, that's what it means to be a part of a church. It's what membership always entails. It's a partnership in the gospel going forward. 
1 John puts it this way. It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Genuine Christian love is never merely an emotion. It's not void of emotion, but it is not by itself. In fact, Paul says the same thing in the book of Romans. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Right? Love and action are meant to go together. In fact, that's what Paul says in verse 8. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Right, right. Paul is unabashedly emotional in this letter. He, he is praying for them. He loves them constantly. And, and the language almost makes us uncomfortable. Like Paul is saying these things about a, a church and we think, really? And, and if I can just speak to, to the men here, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to pick on the men a little bit. I think we probably have a greater challenge with this kind of writing. Right? We, we kind of buy into this, this cultural idea that, that to be a man means you're, you're macho, I don't feel anything, I don't have any emotions, and rah. Of course we do. Of course we do. Right? Just think about the last time you were swinging a hammer and you hit your thumb. There was an emotion that went through you at that moment. It's probably anger, a little bit of frustration, and a lot of pain. Right? The last time someone cut you off in traffic, you felt an emotion. It bubbled up pretty quickly. We are emotional. So let me give a challenge to the dads here then. How do you feel toward the church? How, how are your emotions shown towards God and his people? You might say, well, I don't hate the church. But I'm going to say actually a cold indifference is often more damaging the cold sort of I don't really care usually hurts the church far more than an open hostility. So fathers, if I can challenge you, it'd be this. Would you demonstrate, would you model for your children what a, a masculine, emotional love of God looks like to your children? Would you show them what it looks like to love God and to love his people and how you talk about church and how you talk to other people, would you demonstrate what it looks like to love well? A love that is both emotional and leads to action. That's what Paul is looking for. That's what he is rejoicing over. He is thankful that God has given this church grace. He is thankful that they are uh, fellow participants with him in the work of ministry. But the final thing he does here is he prays for them. He prays that God would be increasing their fruit. Look back at verse 9. Verse 9 says, and it is my prayer, right? We get to hear actually what Paul is praying for them. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul here has two prayer requests. It's two things Paul is praying for. One, that their love would abound more and more and that they would be pure and blameless. He wants this church to be a church that is marked by a love 
It's the same thing Jesus asked. He said, you people will know you are my disciples by your love. That would be a defining mark of the Christian. And yet it's not, it's not a love that we get to just fill in anything, right? Oftentimes when we talk about love, we, we kind of fill in any meaning after that. And, and probably what we mean most commonly when we talk about love is something like, I will approve whatever you're doing. I agree with whatever you are doing. That's often how we define love. It's interesting here, Paul defines it almost the opposite, doesn't he? He says, my prayer for you is that you would abound in love more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. A biblical understanding of love isn't, I I will just agree with whatever you're doing. It's actually saying, I want what is very best for you. I want the best for you, and I don't want to be satisfied until you have it. I don't want you just wandering off, doing something that's going to harm yourself. That isn't loving. In fact, we we know that when it comes to things that are are really obvious. The loving thing for for someone who has a drug habit isn't to say, you know what, just keep going, and I'm sure nothing bad's going to happen. No, no, the loving thing would be to say, please stop. Please stop. You're you're killing yourself. In fact, the call for us as Christians is then to say, if that's what love looks like, actually it means we're called to love one another. It means we need to know the word of God because to follow Jesus will ultimately be what is best. To love one another like this means we're sometimes going to have to call one another out on our sin. Not with with harshness, not with sort of just trying to put people down, but to genuinely say with gentleness, that's not what is best. It means we need to know the word of God, to be filled with it, to love one another well. So Paul prays the church would be abounding in this kind of love. Secondly, he prays that they would be pure and blameless when they stand before God. Right? The overflow of their love would be that they actually begin to live out that. That as Jesus has redeemed us, as Jesus has called us and by his death has made us pure and blameless, forgiven all of our sins, the call is not simply that one day we will be without sin, but it's that we would learn to do that now. That we'd learn to start getting rid of our sins. If Jesus has released us from the bondage of sin, it's not just so that we can do whatever you want, right? Jesus freed you from sin, so now you get to act however you want. That's not what it is. Actually, Paul says he is a servant of Christ. We we have been transferred out of a bondage to sin, which leads to death, now to a service to Jesus, which leads to life. We're called to actually follow after him. Here he calls it the fruit of righteousness. That is a life that is displaying what it looks like to follow after Jesus well. Actually, that's what Paul is praying for this church, that they would have a love overflowing for the good of one another and that their lives would be transformed by what Jesus had done. And then he ends his prayer with these little words, to the glory and praise of God. Here is perhaps Paul's ultimate concern. It's probably the most overriding concern Paul has in this entire book. It's that God might be glorified and worshipped. 
as we go through this book, we're going to see again and again, this theme comes up in all of that Paul is talking about, all that he's calling them to do. It's so that God might be glorified. He might be worshipped. I love the way one writer puts it. It's not as though we are adding to God's glory. When we say we want to glorify God, it's not as if he has some reserve of glory and we add to it. Actually, what we're doing is we are magnifying the glory of God. We, we are making it visible and understandable like, like a galaxy far off in the night sky. It looks like just a pinprick of light. But as soon as you get a telescope, you realize that little tiny light is a galaxy millions of light years across. Actually, that is what we're called to do. We are to take the amazing, expansive glory of God and we are called to magnify it, to make it visible to all around us. This is who our God is. Would you behold him in his greatness and his glory, his love and his mercy towards us? That is the calling that Paul has for us. That's what he's praying, that this church would be abounding in love, that their lives would be purified, not so that they just live nicer, not just so that they're nicer people, but that God might be made known. Paul is thankful for the grace of God to them. He is thankful that the Philippians have engaged in their work and he is calling and praying that they might glorify Jesus. 1 Corinthians puts it this way. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's the call for the Christian life. That in everything God would be seen as great and worthy of all our praise. Everything we have to give to him, we would give. It's my prayer for this church as well. This morning, we're going to close but as we do so, I want us to do something a little different, all right? We're going to close in a little bit of a different way this morning. It's going to involve just a little bit of participation on your end, okay? Now, don't, don't worry. It's, you're just going to be asked to stand. It's not going to be too embarrassing, nothing like that. But I, I want to talk a little bit about what God is actually doing here. See, the thing is, Paul in this passage is rejoicing over what God has been doing in the church, and I want to end this morning by doing exactly that. I want to rejoice over what God has been doing here. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I want to just let you know, I want to celebrate the, the amazing volunteers. We have people here who give of their time and energy and effort so much so that we can actually be here. So I, I want to talk through just a little bit. I want to let you know about what people actually do here. Because you might not even understand everything that goes in, even on a morning like today. See, long before any of us are awake or up, we have volunteers that actually go drive down and pick up the trailer that you see outside. They drive all the way down, they pick it up, and they bring it here for 8 a.m. so that we can actually start unloading it. Right, then we have a whole bunch of volunteers who show up in the morning at 8 o'clock and they start unloading. They start building this stage, getting all of the chairs out, all the banners, everything set up that you see. We have people coming every week who do that. Right, then we have the, all of the musicians who come. They actually set up their own equipment. They start working through all the things. That's after their Thursday night practice. 
They actually practice because they believe that, that doing something with excellence will glorify God. And so they get here in the morning, they set everything up, they work through it so that they can lead us in worship well. Right? We, we have to thank these people that put in a lot of time long before any of us show up. Right? We have amazing volunteers. We have volunteers who, who are going to help welcome you, who are going to welcome you at the door, help you with ushering. They are going to be at the welcome center that make the coffee every week. Okay, We need to thank these people who make us coffee, which is great. We have amazing volunteers, not only in our, our welcome, in our worship, in our setup. We have awesome volunteers every single week who, who will take time to actually teach the children here. Right? I don't know if you've noticed how many kids we have up here in Promontory, but that is an amazing opportunity. And, and we have volunteers every single week who give of their time in order to teach our children, not just watch them for a little bit while we're here. They actually teach them about the Bible. They teach them about who Jesus is and what he has done. They give of their time. In fact, they probably give a lot more than we realize because they're not even here right now, right? So after this, I want you to go find one of the teachers and thank them for everything they do because they have done a ton. They've given up of their time, not only beforehand, but during the service in order to serve us. We have an amazing group from nursery, pre-K, grade school who teach our children and do a fantastic job. In fact, we even have people who, who are working with our youth age as well, not only on Sunday mornings here, but actually during the week they meet with the youth and walk through them, lead them, and help them understand how Jesus is calling them to act all through their teenage years. Right? We need to be thankful for these people who give so much. Not to mention we have life group leaders who spend time every week working through the Bible to be able to lead a group, to pray together, to gather in fellowship, and actually to reach out to others. We have elders in our church who give an amazing amount of their time. Not just for the elder meetings or whatever, they give over and above to be able to serve this place, to lead us well. There are so many people who have given of themselves. There are people who have given to, to do all of the outreach events that we have had, to be able to, to serve our community, to show off the love of God. We have people who have served in all of these areas, and there's probably a thousand more I haven't seen yet. But here's the truth. I am so thankful for each and every one of you. We couldn't be here without you. This church doesn't run because one guy gets paid to be here. That does nothing outside of a body working together. Thank you for working. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand, all right? I'm going to ask you to stand when I, I call out the ministry area where you serve. W would you please stand up for me, all right? Please stand up and remain standing, and we'll give you a hand, all right? So if you serve on our trailer pickup, would you please stand up? If you serve on our welcome teams, would you please stand up? If you serve on our setup teams, would you please stand up? If you serve on our music, on our worship teams, would you please stand up? If you serve on our kids teams, would you please stand up? If you serve in life groups, if you have served at any of our outreach events, would you please stand up? 
Would you please stand up if you've served in our youth department? Please stand as well. Can we give these people a hand? Let me have a huge hand. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before you sit down, sorry. <laughs> Before you sit down, I, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us exactly what Paul prayed for the church in Philippians. He prayed that their love might abound with truth, with discernment, so that they might approve what is excellent, that they might be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So please, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Lord, thank you so much for, for the men and women who give of their time, of their efforts, of their giftings in order to serve you. Lord, I thank you so much for those who have leaned in to the ministry, who have not allowed things simply to pass them by, but to be active participants. Lord, I, I pray, would you bless them now? Might they be abounding in love over and over again. Lord, as they serve and as it is tiring week after week, Lord, would you abound in them a greater and greater love to be able to serve you? Father, would you not allow their hearts to grow, to grow cold, to grow tired, but be renewed each and every morning by your grace, by your spirit that they could serve. Lord, I pray, would you be working in their hearts so that they might understand who you are, that they might be able to live it out. Lord, thank you for the grace you have given to their life. Thank you for the, the sacrifice of Jesus that you have forgiven them. Lord, I pray, would they continue to understand that, continue to walk in that, continue to rejoice in all that you have done. Father, they might be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, that righteousness might pour forth from their lives. Father, that you might bless them, not so that it might stop with them, but that you might be glorified, that you might be magnified, that the greatness of who you are and your character might be seen and loved and beholded before us today. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this campus where you have been made known. Thank you for these volunteers who have given so much of their time. We ask these things in your name. Amen.